Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is July 9th, 2020. This week's Parsha is the Parsha of Pinchas. It is wonderful to see all of you and to have everyone together to be able to learn tonight. Uh, this week's Parsha contains another exquisite lesson in leadership. And if you have the stone Chumash and you want to open it, you don't have to. But if you happen to have the Chumash in front of you, page 888, 888, and that is uh, chapter 27, Posik Yudbez, number 12, right at the top of the page. We have this famous narrative in the middle of the Parsha. Hashem says to Moshe, go to the top of this mountain and from there you will be able to see over the Jordan River, the land of Israel. You'll be able to see it, but you will not be able to enter it because of the sin that you committed with hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock. You are not going to be allowed to go into the land of Israel so you can see it from the top of the mountain on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, but you will not be able to go in. This is the moment where Moshe receives what is perhaps the most personally devastating decision of Hashem, perhaps in his whole life, that his life's goal of being able to reach Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, will not be realized. How does Moshe respond? Later, in Parshas Veschanan, Moshe responds by begging Hashem to change his mind. Veschanan el Hashem lemar. At that time, when I heard that news, Moshe tells the Jewish people, I prayed to Hashem and I begged him to change his mind. And Hashem said no. Okay, that was later. But right here in our Parsha, what's the immediate reaction? The immediate reaction, the next Pasuk. Pasuk Tesvav, 15. Moshe el Hashem Lemar. Moshe responds immediately to Hashem telling him that he will not realize his life's dream. Moshe says to God, Hashem, therefore, it's time for you to appoint my successor, and make sure that it's going to be a person who is going to empathize with the people and lead the people carefully and take care of them and make sure that they are okay. What a remarkable lesson about leadership. Because Moshe's immediate reaction is not to be concerned with his own disappointment. Yes, he is tremendously disappointed and he will express that later. But his immediate reaction is to put all of his personal feelings aside. Hashem, we have to take care of the Jewish people. As a leader, I have to worry about the people that I'm leading while I'm leading them. And I also have to worry about them after I will be leading them. And that's Moshe's lesson to us, to put his role of leadership before his own personal expression of disappointment. A remarkable lesson that we learn from Moshe. Now, so 
Hashem responds to Moshe's request, and Hashem says, okay, I want you, Moshe, to appoint Yehoshua, Joshua, as your successor. And then the Torah has a very short episode with Moshe carrying out Hashem's will, wishes, command, and appointing Yehoshua as his successor. But <clears throat> the way that this episode unfolds is the subject of a famous and paradigmatic essay, lecture, given by the Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory. And it is a lecture that conveys a fundamental and essential understanding of Jewish practice and Jewish life. So let's look a little bit more carefully at the wording in this passage to understand the lessons that Rav Soloveitchik derives from this passage. So again, in the Stone Chumash, I'm on page 888. That's uh, Bamidbar, the book of uh, Numbers, chapter 27, Pasik Tesvav, 15. Vayidaber Hashem el Hashem Lemar, Vayidaber Moshe el Hashem Lemar, Moshe says to God, Yivkod Hashem elakei aruchos l'chobasar, ish aloheida, Hashem, appoint the right person to lead the people. Pasik Yud Tes, near the bottom of the page. Excuse me. Pasuk Yud Ches, I'm sorry. 18, near the, four lines from the bottom of the page. Vayomer Hashem Moshe. God says to Moshe, listen carefully to the words, Kach Yeshua bin Nun, select Yehoshua, the son of Nun, Ish Asher Ruach Bo, a man in whom my spirit rests, Vesamachta Es Yadcha Alav, and place your hand upon him. This is actually the origin of this term smicha, which means to lean, to place one's hands on top of. It has a relevance in karbanos and sacrifices. That's a different subject. But this also is, has a relevance in the subject of rabbinic ordination. A person is considered to be appointed as a rabbi or as a leader when they receive smicha. And originally, what, what the word literally means is, from this passage, Moshe placing his hand on Yehoshua as a, uh, an act of appointing and designating Yehoshua as the successor, as the next leader. But listen to the words carefully one more time. God says to Moshe, select Yehoshua, v'samachta es yadcha alav, and place your hand upon him. Yadcha, hand singular. Next pasik, Venasata. I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, okay, you test. Then chaf at the bottom of the page. Pasik number twenty. Venasata mehodcha alav, and give him your glory, your splendor, your majesty. Laman Yishmu Kaladas Bene Israel, in order that the entire Jewish people should listen to him as they have listened to you, Moshe. Pazikhav Bez, 
I'm now on page 890. Pasuk 22. Vayas Moshe, kasher tziva Hashem oso. And Moshe did exactly what Hashem commanded. Vayikaches Yehoshua. And he take he took Yoshua, and he placed Yoshua. He had Yoshua stand in front of Elazar, who was the Kohen Gadol, the son of Aaron. Aaron had already passed away. Elazar was the Kohen Gadol, and in front of the entire assembled Jewish people. And Moshe placed his hands on him. Vayitzavehu, and Moshe commanded him, Kasher Diber Hashem Biyad Moshe, exactly as God had commanded to Moshe. Well, hold on a second. There's a little bit of a discrepancy, a minor discrepancy, but a discrepancy. <clears throat> if you're going to say that Moshe did exactly what Hashem said, that's got to mean that Moshe did exactly what Hashem said without any deviation. But there appears to be deviation because God said to Moshe, place your hand singular on Yehoshua. Moshe placed his hands, plural, two hands on Moshe and then says that was exactly what Hashem commanded. Well, it wasn't exactly what Hashem commanded. Hashem commanded one hand. Why did Moshe change it to two hands? So the Rav explains that when Hashem commanded Moshe, Hashem commanded Moshe back in Pasuk Yudches, the page before, 888, Pasuk 18, the Samachtes Yadcha you should place your hand upon him. Then in Pasuk 20, and you shall place your majesty upon him or your splendor upon him. That meant the second hand. Meaning, there was one hand that was placed and then there was a second hand to accommodate what Hashem had said for Moshe to place his glory or his splendor or his majesty. So that's why you need two hands. You need the first hand for the first commandment and the second hand for the second part of the commandment, which doesn't mention hand literally, but that's what Hashem meant to say. And that's why the Torah says Moshe did exactly what Hashem commanded because Hashem commanded one hand for the leadership and the second hand for the majesty. What's the difference between what Moshe gave Yehoshua with one hand versus the second hand? According to Rav Soloveitchik, what is conveyed by Moshe's two hands creates the blueprint for Jewish life. Because Jewish life, Jewish practice, exists on two layers. One layer of Jewish life, Jewish practice, Judaism. One layer is the layer of halacha, of Jewish law. What you're supposed to do. And that layer is intellectual. It is conceptual. How to act. 
What are the details? There are concepts that underlie and connect those details. There is precision. This and not that. That and not this. There is analysis. We can analyze. Why is this okay? Why is that not okay? Are these connected? Are they not connected? And on this layer of analysis and intellectual understanding and practice, each person will receive this layer according to their achievements, according to their intellectual prowess, according to their talent, and of course, according to their effort. Because to, be, to master Jewish law, to master the concepts and the analysis and the details, that is a lifelong, lifelong pursuit. And this, by the way, is expressed in the Torah in many places. For example, just to give one example, if you want to turn in the stone Chumash, again, if you don't have it, don't worry, but if you happen to have it in front of you, page 1026. Page 1026, this is in Dvarim, the parsha of Shoftim, uh, chapter 17, middle of the page, Pasuk number Ches, number 8. The Torah says, Moshe is now commanding the Jewish people what Hashem had told him to say, and he says as follows, when there shall be an issue of judgment that you do not know, it's hidden from you. In other words, when you have a question, or there is a controversy, or there is an issue at stake, and you don't know what to do, then you shall go to the place where God has chosen, and you go before the leaders and the judges that will be in that in your day. You go to a judge, you go to a scholar, and you bring your question. And the judge, the 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 leader, the decider, will look into the matter and render a judgment. And you are obligated to follow the judgment that has been rendered. And you have to be careful to follow everything that you have been instructed. So, on the layer of law and analysis and understanding, their details, their concepts, you have to study to be to, to master it. And if you don't know, go to someone who does know and ask them the question, and they can answer the question. And maybe they'll have to look into it, maybe they'll have to ask somebody else, but they'll give you an answer. But then there's a second layer. There's a layer of Jewish life and Jewish practice that is an emotional layer an experiential layer. Let me start with one example. Shabbos. I can teach, I'm now quoting the Rav, Rav Salvechik. So he's saying, I can teach the laws of Shabbos. I can also teach the laws of Shabbos. There's a very big difference between me teaching the laws of Shabbos and the great Rav Salvechik teaching Shabbos. But I'm just trying to convey the lecture the way that he, that, that he gave it. I can teach the laws of Shabbos. I can teach 
39 categories of prohibited activity. I can teach the details of what is prohibited, what is permitted. I can teach the conceptual understanding why this is permitted on Shabbos, why that's prohibited, how are they connected. And a person can study and master every detail of how to observe Shabbos and still not understand what Shabbos means to a Jewish person and still not be able to appreciate the experience of Shabbos because to appreciate what it is to live the experience of Shabbos, it's not enough to know the law. One has to be in a Jewish home and one has to create a Jewish home and hear the sound of Kiddush being made and smell the smells of delicious Shabbos meals that are being prepared and served and see the beauty of Shabbos candles. To know Shabbos, it's not enough to know just the rules. It's also necessary to see and to feel how Shabbos transforms a Jew from living with burden and anxiety during the week to becoming a prince and a princess on Shabbos. Now this second layer of the emotion and the mood and the experience, this applies in every area of Jewish life and practice. It applies even to the most fundamental aspects of Judaism. For example, we must know God. The Rambam says, Maimonides, mitzvah leidas Hashem. There is a mitzvah commandment to know God, to try, apply ourselves, to understand philosophically and spiritually and ritually, to understand God, to try to the best of our ability to comprehend God. Of course, yes, we're never going to completely succeed in that because God is beyond our con concentration. Uh, our comprehension. But we have to apply ourselves to understand, to analyze, to, to discern. But then, there's another layer. Famous Pasuk in Tehillim. Paragraph 34. Tamu kitov Hashem. Taste and see that God is good. more than just understanding, conceptualizing, comprehending, taste it, experience it. Let it be part of your emotional experience. That's the second layer. Now, this second layer is much harder to teach. Because how do you convey that? Take another example. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There is a large section of Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, that deals with Rosh Hashanah. The laws of observing Rosh Hashanah, the laws of blowing the shofar, and how many sounds, and what are the prayers to say, and the customs that we observe, and Yom Kippur, 
the laws of fasting on Yom Kippur and the laws of observing Yom Kippur. We have a, a, a section of Jewish law in Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. But in that Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, there is no paragraph that gives any guidance on what a person should feel on Rosh Hashanah. What should a person feel during the Elah? You won't find that in the Shulchan Aruch. That's a separate layer. And that is what Yehoshua received from Moshe, from Moshe's second hand. With one hand that Moshe placed on Yehoshua, Yehoshua received the ability to lead on the layer of halacha, of analysis and intellectual conceptualization. But with the second hand, Moshe gave to Yehoshua the ability to lead and to transmit an emotional, experiential connection to Judaism and to Torah and to Jewish life. That's why Moshe needed both of his hands. Let me try to share with you an application of this, the distinction between what Moshe conveys and gives with his first hand and his second hand. <clears throat> Today is the 17th day of Tammuz, Shiva Asa Tammuz. Today is a fast day. Today is the beginning of a three-week period leading up to Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av, the day that we mourn and commemorate the Churban, the destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the second temple, and other catastrophes that have befallen the Jewish people on this day. Three weeks of mourning in increasing levels of intensity from today going forward until the most difficult day three weeks from today, Tisha B'Av. Now I can teach what happened on this day. I spoke about that this morning. I can teach what happened on Tisha B'Av. I can teach how to act, what is prohibited as of today, what becomes prohibited on Rosh Chodesh Av, the beginning of the month of Av, the beginning of what we call the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, a higher level, a more intense level of mourning. I can teach how to act on Tisha B'Av itself at night, and it's slightly different in the morning, and then again slightly different in the afternoon. I can lay all that out for you. I can discuss that. That's one level. That's the level of halacha. I can try to explain why we do that, how it relates to Jewish life. I can explain on an intellectual level the concepts behind those practices. And that's very important. Please don't think that I'm minimizing that. That's extremely important. And you can ask a question. You can ask me a question or anybody else and I can try to answer it. And maybe I'll be able to answer it. And even if I'm not able to answer it, I can look it up. I can research it and I can get back to you with an answer. But what about the second layer? How can I impart to you how to feel today? 
How can I impart to you what your mood should be over the next three weeks? What you should be feeling on Tisha B'Av? Because you understand that that second layer is really the essential layer. You understand that the behaviors, not having weddings, not getting a haircut, I'm not shaving during these three weeks as a sign of mourning. In the nine days, we don't, eat meat, we don't enjoy meat and wine. All of those, those are not the ends. Those are the means. Those are tools. Those are tools to help us create the mood which is internal, which is emotional, which is, of course, the goal. The goal is the mood, the attitude, the feeling, the emotion. How do I convey it? It's a lot more difficult than trying to teach the laws. So let me try. Let me share just a couple of reflections. Now, what I want to share with you relates to Tisha B'Av, which is three weeks from today. And I share it with you in order that we should be able to use this three-week period to reflect and to integrate these thoughts and sentiments into our mood and our experiences. <clears throat> there is a moment on Tisha B'Av at the very beginning at night. It's a moment that always affects me very deeply. It's brief. It's very subtle. I would assume it takes place in shul. I would assume many people, if not most people, do not even notice this moment. There is a custom that when Tisha B'Av begins, so that means in shul, just before we begin Marid, the evening service on the night of Tisha B'Av, that we remove the parochas from the Aron. The Aron, the Ark, has a parochas, a curtain. And we take the curtain off. We remove the curtain. Here at Adath, it doesn't exactly work that way because it's very tall. It can't really get to the top to take it off. What we do is we push it to the side. And since the Torahs are now uncovered and we don't want to show dishonor to the Torahs, we take a talus and we simply drape a talus over the Torah scrolls. That's what we do at Adath. But other places, they actually take the curtain off of the Ark. Okay, each place does it the way they do it. It's a custom. It's a minhag. The reason for the custom is that it is a sign that God's presence is absent. Now, it pains me even just to say those words because it's not true. Of course, God's presence is never absent. But on Tisha B'Av, we experience God's presence as being absent. And removing the parochas indicates that because in the Mishkan, in the Beis Amigdash, in the Holy Temple, the parochas, the curtain, was there to separate. 
between the holy, the room where the menorah was, and the shulchan, the table was, and the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the holy of holies, that was behind the curtain, where the Aron Kodesh, the ark, and the luchos, that was behind. But the parochas divided. And the parochas divided because God's presence rested and there had to be a curtain to provide a certain amount of privacy. Once God's presence is no longer resting on that place, the parochas is removed because there's no need for it. Because you don't have a holy of holies. You just have extra space. So we take the parochas off. And when I do that simple, quick act, I feel very deep emotion. I feel the emotion of the Pasuk in Yeshayahu. In the Haftorah that we read on the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. We refer to that as Shabbos Chazon. It's always the Parsha of Devarim. And we read from the beginning of the book of Yeshayo, Isaiah the prophet. And this passage at the beginning of Isaiah is a terrible and painful indictment of the Jewish people prophesizing the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, which is what we commemorate on Tisha B'Av. <clears throat> and in that passage, we read the following words. Ubefarischem kapehem, kapehem. And when you spread out your arms to pray to me, God says to the Jewish people through his prophet Yeshayahu, Alim Einaimikem, I will avert my eyes from you. Gam Kisarbos Fila, even God says when you, the Jewish people, engage in prayer, meaningful prayer. Eneni Shomea, I will not hear it. Yidechem Domim Moleu, because your hands are filled with blood, because you're hypocrites, because you don't deserve it. God is going to avert his eyes from us? When we pray to God sincerely, he's not going to listen? And I'm just pulling back this curtain and I'm putting this talus on and I think about these words. That's what Chorban is. That's what the destruction of the temple means is to feel that God is no longer close to us. Now, again, it's not true. It's not true but that's what it feels like to us. That is our experience on Tishabav. That's what we're going through. We're going through an experience where, from our point of view, God is not listening to us. It's like we can't win. It's like we won't be able to survive. And that 
momentary, quick act of removing the parochas, just for me personally, internally, I feel like I'm going to faint. I feel terror and fear just in that moment. That's part of the experience. That's part of the emotion that we need to have during this period of the Jewish calendar. But it's more complex than that. Let me share another moment that, again, for me personally, has great emotion and feeling and meaning for me. On Tisha B'Av Day, one of the main ways in shul that we engage in the process of mourning and introspection and reflection is the recitation of Kinos, the poems of lamentation and mourning, the dirges that we say together that express our heartache, that express our pain and suffering. And near the end is one of the most famous. It's actually a poem that we sing in our shul. We sing it aloud together. And the first stanza goes like this. Elitzion ve'areha kamo isha betzireha v'chibsula chagura sak al bal ne'ureha. Elitzion ve'areha kamo isha betzireha Lament Zion and her cities like a woman in labor giving birth, like a young woman mourning the death of her husband of her youth. We lament, we mourn Zion and her cities on Tisha B'Av like a woman in labor. Marcy always tells me whenever I complain, there's nothing as painful as a woman in labor. But that's the pain that we feel on Tisha B'Av. Like a young woman mourning for the husband of her youth. This is the metaphor for our experience on Tisha B'Av. But I ask you to pay close attention because this kina, this magnificent poem, expresses and describes the mourning for Zion, for Zion, and for Jerusalem with two haunting metaphors. But the two metaphors are very different from each other. And they actually speak to different eras of Jewish history. 
and they speak to different experiences. Like a young woman mourning the husband of her youth. That is truly tragic. She will never be the same. He will never return. For almost 2,000 years of our history, that was our perception of what happened to Jerusalem and Israel on Tishabov. It's over. It's gone. It will never come back. Like a woman giving birth is so different not in the severity of the pain. The pain is just as severe. But there's such a difference in the duration of the pain. But even more importantly, in the result. Because a woman may suffer terribly during childbirth. But with God's help, and of course, sadly, there are exceptions to this. But with God's help, that pain ends in birth. It ends in life. It ends in joy. So we have two layers in the emotion and mood of these three weeks. The layer of utter tragedy. It's over. There's nothing left. And then the layer, and that's the layer that existed for 2,000 years when there did not appear to be any hope. But then there's the second layer. We are living in a special time. And we must recognize this and not take it for granted because for almost 2,000 years, no Jew has ever experienced what we are experiencing today. We are seeing the redemption at hand. We already see the fulfillment of prophecies of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It has been fulfilled in our day. We are seeing today the flowering of Israel, and the beginnings of the ingathering of the exile. It is happening. We are experiencing this with the second metaphor. We are seeing the end of this pain. We are seeing the pain of birth. Let me try to express this current mood by sharing with you two stories. <clears throat> Rabbi Menachem Rab told the following story. In 1960, Rabbi Rab came to Israel with a group. He was a rabbi in the United States. And he took a group to Israel. And the group found themselves on Shabbos Nachamu. Now, Shabbos Nachamu is the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av. And on the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av, we read 
another passage from Yeshayahu, from the prophet Isaiah, a very different mood. And the passage starts with, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Be comforted, God says to the Jewish people through his prophet Yeshayahu. Be comforted, be comforted, my people. The amazing change in mood and attitude from what we read the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av and what we read the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av, both of them from the same prophet. Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Be comforted, be comforted, my people. In 1960, Rabbi Rab and his group happened to be in shul in Yerushalayim. They happened to be in the Yeshurun synagogue. You may know it, in Jerusalem. On the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av. Shabbos Nachab. And on that day, the president of Israel, Yitzchak ben Svi, was also in shul. And when they came to the maftir, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, the Gabai called the president of Israel to receive maftir. And the president of Israel came up to the bima, and the entire shul stood up out of respect. And they remained standing while he read the entire passage. And then only after he finished and returned to his seat did the congregation sit down. And Rabbi Rab said about that moment, what an amazing moment. Fifteen years after the Holocaust, 1960, fifteen years after the Holocaust, the president of the state of Israel read, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, be comforted, be comforted, my people. The president of Israel, in the new state of Israel, comforted the Jewish people with these words of Yeshayahu from God himself, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, be comforted, be comforted, my people. We all stood for the entire Haftorah and we were comforted. Imagine the moment, the, the emotion of that moment. One last story. <clears throat> this is a story that I heard from my friend and colleague, Rabbi Ruvain Tradberg's. If I say to you, here in Canada, a building contractor, what is that image in your mind? I don't know. Someone who's competent, someone who's skilled, someone who co coordinate. Let me share a little insight into Israeli culture. In Israel, if you say the word kablan, which is the Hebrew word for contractor, but it's not exactly the same. A kablan, there is a cultural association with this word. It's a stereotype, okay, but there is a certain truth to stereotypes. A kablan in Israel is a guy, and so far they're mostly guys. Maybe that'll change. Maybe it is changing. Rough, bossy, aggressive, loud. Okay, 
not always accurate, but accurate enough. You say a kablan in Israel, people know what you mean. There was a man, a kablan, but one of these guys, an Israeli, a kablan. Tough. Drives a pickup truck. Israeli. But this kablan is a little bit different. He also attends Dafyomi, learns Talmud every day. Okay. Nebel, his father, passed away. And he was sitting Shiva for his father. He was sitting Shiva for his father, and the seventh day of Shiva, the day that he would get up from Shiva, was going to be Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. That's the day that he would finish Shiva. A day or two before the end of Shiva, someone came to visit him. Another man, an acquaintance, a friend. Another man who was also a kablan. Also a typical Israeli kablan. Rough. A little aggressive. But also, like the man sitting Shiva, with another side to him. He also learned Torah every day. He was in shul every day. So these two men kind of uh, parallel lives in many ways. And they're sitting together and the, the one who's sitting Shiva says to the other, to his friend, he says, tomorrow will be Tisha B'Av when Shiva is over what I'm going to do is, I'm going to travel, Shiva will be over, so I'm going to travel to my father's, Alev Shalom, his senior residence, where he was living before he passed away, because he had a lot of friends there, and they're very elderly, they were not able to come to the Shiva, and I think they would appreciate if I would go to them, now that Shiva's over, I can go to them, and and we can be together and tell stories about my father. And he said, I think it's appropriate way to spend the day on Tisha B'Av. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of, of sadness. And it would be appropriate for me to go there and to be able to engage in continuing to remember my father, to pay tribute to my father, to spend time with my father's friends. It's an appropriate way for me to spend the day on Tisha B'Av. Okay. The visitor... The other Kablan says, No, I always get up at 6 a.m. Minyan, Tisha B'Av morning, and then I go to work. Now, that's a bit of a surprising statement for a very religious Jewish person to say because it is permitted to go to work on Tisha B'Av, and many people do, but the Talmud says, it's not recommended. It would be preferable to spend the day, or at least part of the day, engaged in reflection and sadness and mourning. And the Talmud uses the words, a person who goes to work on Tishbav, lo ra'a simen bracha, you're not going to see any blessing from that work. So the the man who's sitting Shiva says, I don't, I don't go to work on Tisha B'Av. The Talmud says, Lo ra simen bracha. I'm not going to see any blessing from that work, so why should I go to work? I don't work on Tisha B'Av. But the other Kablan says, 
the visitor. I work double on Tisha B'Av. I'm a contractor. I'm building buildings in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem of destruction is being rebuilt by me. What better way to observe Tisha B'Av than to build buildings and homes and rebuild the broken Jerusalem? I tell my workers, take off the day before. You can take off the day after. I don't care. But on Tisha B'Av, we work double rebuilding Jerusalem. Let that sink in. Allow that perspective to illuminate your mood, your emotions, your attitudes over the next three weeks, and especially on Tisha B'Av itself. It's complex. It's a lot. But that's really what it's about. And as we do so, as we work on the emotion of what we're experiencing in the next three weeks, let's remember the importance of this layer of Jewish life and that it was first bestowed by Moshe to Yehoshua in our Parsha with Moshe's second hand. My friends, have a great evening, a wonderful Shabbos. I hope it's an easy fast for you. And I hope that this is the last time we have to engage in mourning and sadness so that we'll be able to celebrate the complete redemption and rebuilding of Jerusalem.